0: Okay, we thank you for listening to this episode of In Harmony with Piedmont Opera. This podcast, we want to discuss some issues as we're recording in February, Black History Month. Uh, We want to discuss issues surrounding race and the experiences of people of color in the opera world. And we want to look at the representation in the opera industry and how there's still work to be done to create more equity and opportunity for people of color. Making opera accessible to all races is a very important goal, one of the most important goals uh, for all of us with the Piedmont Opera. So our guest on this episode is Marsha Thompson. Uh, Marsha was in Suar Angelica last season at Piedmont Opera back in October. And in fact, uh, several audience members were uh, very moved by her performance, so much so that they had to leave the auditorium because they were sobbing so loudly Uh, marcia did you know that were you aware of that Uh,
1: i i knew that people were crying i knew that there were several people because they told me because i would go out of the theater and meet people that i knew outside the theater so during um intermission or maybe not intermission but at the end of both shows because it was a double bill with johnny skiki and um, people would come up to me and say, oh, my God, I cried so much. <laughs> but I didn't realize that there was audible sobbing going on. So if that if that's the case, then I guess I did my job, huh? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's, uh, that's certainly people with firsthand accounts of how... <laughs> how people are reacting to your performance uh, said as much. So um, very moving performance. So uh, Mm -hmm. Ms. Thompson began her musical studies as a violinist during her time uh, playing the violin. She's played in regional symphony orchestras in Louisiana and Texas, uh, the Galveston Symphony, Woodland Symphony Orchestra, Southeast Louisiana Symphony and Texas Music Festival Symphony Orchestra, and then decided to sing full time after receiving a full scholarship to the prestigious just Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara, California, to study with Marilyn Horn. Uh, Marcia, where did your love of music originate?
1: My parents. My dad was, uh, he wished that he could have played saxophone, but that was not an accessible opportunity for him where he grew up. And my mother wanted to be a ballerina. But that also was not an option for her. And so they both loved music. And when I was a, a baby, really, I was about two years old, they started taking me to live free concerts in the park. We lived in Houston, Texas at the time. And we would go see the Houston Symphony live in open air spaces. We would go see um, other various concerts. And then we moved to Louisiana. and. I saw the Suzuki string children playing on the Today Show, I thought it was the Boston Pop Symphony, but I also think that because my dad made, in order to train me to sit still, my dad made me watch PBS on on the weekends. (laughs) And invariably, we would always end up watching the Boston Pop Symphony. So when I saw the Suzuki kids, I get, I think I made the connection finally in my, in my young brain, I was about four and a half years old. And I asked my mom, I said, well, what are they doing? What are they hitting that thing with? And she said, it's a bow and they're playing the violin. And when they pull the bow across the strings, it makes music. And I looked at the TV and I said, yeah, I can do that. And my mom said, I don't think you can do that. You need lessons to do that. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I'll get the lessons. I said, but I already know I know how to do it. (laughs) And so a few months later, I started studying Suzuki violin. So, so,
0: yeah, that was going to be my next question is what drew you to that particular instrument? And it mm-hmm. it just you, you saw it being played and you and you uh, you saw the movement and you heard the sound and you said, mm-hmm. I really like that.
1: Yep, I liked it. Uh, the violin teacher who came to the house and demonstrated the instruments for me, she brought the viola and the cello as well. But I said, no, I want to play the violin like I saw the children playing on the television. So it was, it was always in my mind, you know, sort of, I knew I could do it. Now I just need the instrument so I can get started. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like you see people running a race and you're like, yeah, I could run a race like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why not? Let's do it.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And once you got, once you got your hands on it, um, mm-hmm. and you started to learn how often were you playing, um, I mean, I, I I have children, and one of them mm. plays the piano, and you know mm. sometimes it's it's pulling teeth to get them to sit down and and yeah. practice. Um, were tough. were you pretty much a self starter and, and took all the initiative to 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 uh, build that craft?
1: That's really a good question because in Suzuki back then, um, the parents were encouraged to learn with the child. So my mother played violin with me for the first two years. And when the music started to become rather challenging, then she says, OK, well, you're on your own. <laughs> she had too many other responsibilities. She couldn't practice as much as I could. Mm. So I, I started to practice on my own. But my mom was also a taskmaster. Yeah. So for me, I just wanted to practice when I wanted to. And my mom says, no, your teacher says you have to practice every day. And when you're a kid and you want to play outside, you want to ride bikes and (laughs) hang out with your friends. That's not always fun to have to stay inside and practice. Right. So for a little while, I lost interest in the violin, actually. But then something happened. Um, I I think after I hit puberty, (laughs) something happened and I just could not put it down. I would practice three hours nonstop and my mom would have to make me come eat dinner, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So there's something that clicks. It's either, either you want it and it's a part of who you are or either you just do it and it becomes, you have, you, you gain an appreciation for it, but it doesn't become a part of, of the fabric of your personality or your goals in life. It's mm. it's either or so but it's good that you've introduced your child to piano because you never know whether or not they your your child is going to decide one day oh my god this is something that I really do enjoy
0: right you know? yeah. yeah well we're we're <laughs> still we're still waiting for the moment that it'll click because right, <laughs> now, right now it's we're just trying to say can can we get to 20 or 30 minutes <laughs> of practice yeah at least 30
1: get- at least 30 every yeah. day.
0: Can we get to that stage um you, you mentioned how your your parents would take you to to live um performances when you were a kid. um mm-hmm. what what type of music what type of music you know if 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 you're just around the house and and um there's music being played and just just for for casual settings, um what type of music was in your house uh, when you were growing up that that you would typically listen to?
1: That is a really great question, and he, he just passed away yesterday. We listened to a lot of Burt Bacharach yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> because
1: my dad was in love with Dionne Warwick. <laughs> so we listened to a lot of Henry Mancini, uh, what people would probably can refer to as elevator music. Um, So we always had that station playing and I so I think that also created my love for classical music. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there was classical music being played in the house, but not as often. And, and obviously, you know, my parents are baby boomers. So we were listening to lots of Motown. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yes,
1: lots of Motown.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Any, any other particular performers that inspired you as, as you were trying to find your way in the musical space?
1: I, I thought I was going to take voice lessons initially and learn how to sing like Aretha Franklin.
0: Oh, okay. And that's what
1: I really thought. And I, I went into my voice teacher studio because he was teaching and he was a master's degree student at University of Houston. And I was there for a summer music festival. And I walked in and I said, I want to learn how to sing. And he he looked at my alligator skin violin case and my funky hair. And he said, Why? <laughs> because I was already on this trajectory in his mind and I was very eccentric. And, um, and then I said, I don't know. I think I want to learn how to sing like Aretha Franklin. Mm. And after three voice lessons, he said, honey, you're not going to sing like Aretha Franklin. You're going to be singing more like Leontine price. And I said to him, I said, well, who is that? <laughs> and he said, you need to go to the listening lab and listen, and then I. Right, exactly, and because as a violinist, you know, I I knew who Fritz Kreisler was, I knew who Itzhak Perlman was, I knew I knew who all the great violinists were, but I didn't know who the great opera singers were, opera divas were, and I said, oh my God, this is the lady that's on that uh, United Negro College Fund commercial. <laughs> When I first started listening to her, because you remember she had this beautiful commercial on television. And I said, Oh, this is that lady from that commercial on TV. And I started to, I began listening to Landine Price. And then it just sort of morphed from there. Yeah. yeah. I listened to Shirley Verrett. I listened to Jesse Norman. I listened to Mirela Freny. I listened to Maria Callas. So all of these great sopranos uh, became my my staple
0: after yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love I love the phrase opera diva. Um I, I love hearing that. And how you how you kind of discovered that as as you went from someone who's who tried to be someone to I want to sing like Aretha. Yeah. Um, And then and then migrating into into this world. Um, It's somewhat of a transition into one of the main things we want to talk about today, which is, um, you know, again, we want to discuss the issues surrounding race and the experiences of people in color in the world of opera. Um, So I want to ask you, um, Marsha, about the impact as you were growing up in this world, um, the impact of seeing, or or maybe even not seeing, um, a person of color performing on stage?
1: Well, that's a very good question because my first experience as a classical musician was having zero reference to race. Um, I only really related to the instrument, violin. And I was the first Black person in the Suzuki violin program in my hometown yeah. of Freeport, Louisiana. So, in, in many ways, I've been a first <laughs> in, in my own life experiences. So, I didn't see another Black violinist until late elementary. And she were you, she was were you about,
0: aware of that? Were you aware of that when you were in the when when you were doing that and you were the only person? I uh, didn't think about it because my okay. parents
1: never spoke about race in that okay. context around the house. Sure. Um, my never my parents never spoke derogatively about other races of people. I g- went to a Christian private school. So I I was called the N word in school and my mom put an end to that um, since they were paying for me to go there. But um, it didn't mean anything to me as far as me feeling hurt by someone calling me that word, even at a young age. I just thought to, to myself that the, the, the other child that called me that word was just ignorant mm. and, and, and and didn't know any better. And so when I finally saw other black people playing viol- uh, classical music instruments, I realized, oh, there aren't that many of us. Mm. But in my mind, I was just like all the other children playing violin. Until I realized that I was the only one, you know, so um, and then once I got to middle school, once you get to middle school in in the state of Louisiana, there was orchestra in school. So then there were lots of children and I went to a magnet school, which was racially integrated, very diverse. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And there were Asian children, black children, white children, and we all played in orchestra together. So, again, it didn't seem like it was a white thing or a black thing. It just was a music thing. Um, I didn't really encounter the, the more deep racial issues in music, if you will, until I got to college, where some professors would tell me, well, you can't do both. And I'm thinking, well, why can't I do both if I'm good at them? hmm. So I and, and of course, it was always white professors who would tell me that, you know, they would always say, well, you can't play violin and sing opera. And I was like, well, why not? Because it was a white professor who told me that I could sing opera. Yeah. And play the violin. So the other white professors who were telling me that I couldn't, I was it was very confusing for me. Uh, so but I was cast in leading roles at a very early point in my vocal studies because the orchestra conductor the opera pit orchestra conductor had worked with me as a violinist so he knew that I had the musical acumen to also be on stage so they so they would they would also cast me in leading roles in college as an undergraduate which in many schools is unheard of
0: mm-hmm.
1: so i i I I I really in my young musical experiences I did experience racism but it it was nothing compared to the things that I heard and experienced once I moved to New York. <laughs> really. And you would think New York would be since it is such a metropolitan melting pot Correct. it would yeah. be a more um inclusive environment but actually it became a more exclusive environment. And exclusionary in many ways, and having my my even my agent saying racist thing, racist things to me. So, but I was able to block out the noise, I think, and just keep going because I always knew who I was as a musician. And so that it didn't really matter to me what people said and still say to this day. (laughs) <laughs> which is really, you know, people say so many things and you're just thinking to, to yourself while they just really can't help themselves. So you just, you know, you learn how to have feathers like a duck and let it roll off of your back. And yeah. not to say that it doesn't stay with you and you don't contemplate the things that people say, but you are able to move past those things and still have emotional fortitude, and also um, confidence in your own skill.
0: Yeah. But clearly, going back to what you said about um, some of the things from the school you attended,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: you 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 were able to reason um, pretty well in terms of why people were reacting or saying the things that they did. And so, uh, you know, it's no surprise to hear the way that you were able to handle that as you were growing up. Um, it is... Yeah. It is interesting um, to hear you talk about the differences that you experienced growing up in the deep south and then mm-hmm. going to a large city, a melting pot, as you mentioned, like New York City, that you would think would be a little more um you know mm-hmm. accepting of of diversity in, in the arts. Um mm-hmm. so I you know am I'm I'm curious to know, even after conversations with various professors and and saying, you know, you can't do both in terms of playing and singing. You know, did you ever did you ever see that there were roles that you wanted to be able to um, sing, perform, uh, but you felt that you that race was going to be an obstacle for that?
1: Um, Yes, because as um, a lyric spinto soprano. In many, many opera houses, black women were not hired to sing lyric ingenue roles until recently. There was, you know, Kathleen Battles sang comedic roles and fantasy roles at the Met, but she was never really a bonafide, you know, and she was a smaller lyric soprano type voice, but she was never really a bonafide lyric ingenue, singing Manon, Singing a uh, uh, Marguerite, uh, singing uh, Mimi and La Boheme. There was Leona Mitchell at one point, and she sang many of those roles. Some of them at the Met and many other opera houses. But but in general, once you leave the nineteen eighties, <laughs> there there were there was sort of um there was something that happened in the eighties and. I won't go into those details because um, I don't know all of the very intricate details of what happened, but there was sort of a backlash against Black singers and um, in the early 90s. And that's really when affirmative action, if you will, in the opera industry ended. And so Yes, there were still some Black singers being hired in heroic, heroine type roles, but in the in the romantic leading roles, which are the roles that prepare you to sing the heroic roles, those were no longer available to us, especially tenors, Black tenors, but it also happened to Black sopranos. So in, I would go into auditions for lyric ingenue roles, and you know the lyric ingenue is the damsel in distress. So historically, even you know if you look at history in our country, the black woman is never the one who's the damsel in distress who needs to be saved. <laughs> so in opera, that kind of played out, and um, and so I wasn't hired for those roles, which were the training ground for the roles that I now sing. Mm-hmm. So it it was a detriment for a time period and then in the early 2000s it started to happen that things started to loosen up again and I was then hired to sing um, La Violeta and La Traviata I sang it in Mississippi which was a very interesting experience and with Mississippi opera and then I sang it in Central Park with New York Grand Opera. And I think it was a, a great opportunity for me, but then the recession happened right after that. And so with the recession, there are always cutbacks. And typically, when there are cutbacks during tough economic times, black people tend to be uh to to to, to experience them a little bit more harshly in every industry. So opera is no exception to that. So that also was a um, an interesting time to be an opera singer and and not be hired in your repertoire. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So w- would you say then that opera has become more inclusive? Would would you do you do you feel that way?
1: Well, let me just say this until opera company, until the audiences at opera houses are truly integrated. Hmm then it doesn't really matter because we are not tapping into the discretionary funds of our local communities. So if you look in in an opera audience and you see mostly um, elderly white faces, that's not a good thing. So in integrating the stages of opera, you also in turn run the possibility of integrating the audience and tapping into other income sources, other streams of revenue for the opera house. So um, now things have opened up a bit. There's a lot of new opera being written and there happen to be roles for Black singers and a lot of those new operas. But opera singers go to school to sing standard repertoire. And, uh, and so You can't have new opera and and integrate new opera and not also integrate standard repertoire. And that's what was so beautiful about the Suor Angelica that we did at Piedmont Opera because um, uh, maestro James Britton had the foresight. He and um, Stephen Lacoste decided to cast me as Suor Angelica because we had worked on an Aida in Colorado Springs together. Hmm. And I ended up being the only black woman on stage, but also singing the leading role. And the women in the cast that they had singing the other nun roles were just incredible individuals because it was still the middle of the pandemic. (laughs) And and if I got sick (laughs) and couldn't sing my role, then you know the, the the whole thing would not have that wouldn't have been what they the 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 original plan right and all of my sisters i will say my sisters because we did become sisters for a period of time right we were nuns in the shell so we were sisters in the shell and we also were sisters in our commitment to keep each other healthy and um wearing masks at every rehearsal and it, making sure that we kept our kept our pods outside of our rehearsal space very small so that we could all stay healthy. I mean, it was really a beautiful experience. And um, that those are the experiences in opera for me that transcend race. And that's why it's important for us to all work together to integrate our art form, to fully integrate our art form, because we, in my opinion, we are a beacon of hope with regard to that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I just really had a spectacular experience when I was in Winston-Salem for that show.
0: That is, that is great to hear. Um, (laughs) And to hear that you all took such great care of one another and worked so hard to take great mm-hmm. care of one another because you realize the importance of, yes of, of, of being able to do the show the way that you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what role do you feel opera companies should have in, in, in making the art form more inclusive?
1: <laughs> well, a lot of opera companies have taken those steps, which is great. And, and my only thing is, we have to, if we're going to integrate our art form, continue to integrate our art form, then we have to have, um, excuse me, um, diverse casting across the board in all voice types and all uh, periods of opera. And that's just the way that it has to be. If we want to continue to thrive and survive that, The second thing we have to do is go into companies like Boeing, Goldman Sachs, uh, IBM, and do lunch and learns for the people who have discretionary money Mm. to afford tickets to the opera. Mm -hmm. You know, education and outreach is great because we want to inform and educate children, but we need the people in our communities who have discretionary funds for tickets to also participate in the audience. And in sharing this art form with us, so that's what I think really needs to happen. And as someone someone told me, "Well, you should be the person to do that." <laughs> and I said, "No, no, no i just have the I just have the intellectual capital, and I hope someone takes it and <laughs> and, and, and and improves on my idea. And they do it because I have no interest." In doing those kinds of things, because I have done a lot of outreach in the past. And when I'm when I'm singing at an opera company, I try my best to go above and beyond to do marketing mm. and to reach out to the community to get students to come to do master classes, whatever it takes, but <laughs> to get people in those seats. Yeah. And so I do that when I'm hired to sing at an opera company. I think Jamie would agree that I did a lot of that when I was there. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> what do you, um, shifting gears for just a moment, because you, you you touched on this, talking about what you did when you were here and the marketing. Uh, what stood out to you about your experience in, in Winston-Salem? I'm, I'm thinking about aside from um, the, the relationships that you had and the sisterhood that you formed, but yeah. um, just the area. You know, we, we love to hear people's take on, on the area of Winston-Salem and the Piedmont Triad.
1: I thought Winston Salem was great. And, and this is my second time singing in your area. I there was a joint production with um Opera Carolina and, Char- and Charlotte's. Um, I'm about to say Charlotte, Charlottesville. No, I'm t- I have all of my Charlotte's mixed up because I was just in Charleston. I'm getting ready to go to Charlottesville. And we're that's Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> and so let me get everything. So Charlotte, North Carolina. Opera Carolina did a Porgy and Bess, a joint production with Piedmont Opera, and I sang Bess in that production. So I did have a chance to sing in Winston-Salem years ago doing that, but I didn't get to enjoy the city. Mm. And this time I really got to shop. (laughs) Jamie told me, he was like, you're spending too much money. Stop shopping. (laughs)
0: Because I was
1: buying gifts for, you know, I like to buy gifts, little, little knickknacks for people when I do the show. Um, But the shopping, eating out, um, you know, I, I went to a few restaurants and driving around the city to go to get my dry cleaning done or whatever the case would be. I thought it was a very lovely town. Very yeah. lovely. Good. I love the hills and the greenery. Uh, so I enjoyed Winston-Salem a lot this time. And, and it didn't hurt that Piedmont Opera treated me so well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you you were here in the fall and, and fall in North Carolina is is just beautiful. Um, oh,
1: I'm, so wonderful. I'm
0: glad you, you enjoyed it. <laughs> Uh, Mar- Marcia, as as we wrap up here, you know our, our audience on our podcast is mostly local and mm-hmm. um, I, I wonder if you have a, a, a few lasting words that you'd like to say to to anybody who you know we we try to do this just to reach new people, reach new audience. Um, we yeah. realize that there's a, a lot of um, loyal patrons. Um, that that listen to the show, but we hope to reach a lot of new people and younger audience um, through this podcast. So, what would be your message to anybody listening? As as you try to um, as we try to um, galvanize more people and and grab a, a new section of audience here locally.
1: Well, I I just think that you all are doing a really good job. That that historic theater that you perform in that we perform in there is beautiful and the people in the community who have not yet experienced Piedmont opera are missing out on a real treat. (laughs) And so I would like to encourage them just like, um, you know, wicked comes into town and you buy tickets to go see wicked. That's an out of town production, right? But supporting the Piedmont opera pumps money into your local economy. It supports local artists Local artisans, and and I think it's always great for us to continue to buy tickets and support our local arts organizations. So I just hope that more people will engage with the opera company, and um, and that you all are able to reach a broader audience in your in your community. And maybe one day I'll come back and continue to help you all do that. Um, I I hope that Jamie will invite me back for something so we can continue uh, the fun that we had the last time I was there.
0: Well, that, we certainly hope that that's going to be the case. Um, Marsha Thompson has been our guest on this episode of In Harmony with Piedmont Opera. You can learn more about her at her website, Thompson.com. You can see uh, video clips. You can listen to audio recordings. You can find out where she's performing next. Uh, plenty of information about her. So we appreciate, Marsha, you spending the time with us and and helping to enlighten us on a lot of different subjects here today.
1: Thank you, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. And I wish you all the best with your podcast and everything else you have going on in life.